Hello and welcome to the third season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special people about food, what it means to them, and the role it has played in their life. We ask about food memories and favorite recipes, must-have ingredients, and the dishes that represent comfort, celebration, or adventure, and find out a lot more about our guests in the process. Hey, how are you, Jimmy? Hello, Alison. I am all right. And uh, if I sound a little bit down, you probably know why. Just not recovered from Sunday night yet. It was, of course, England having the chance to win <laughs> the Euros and not quite making it. So, yeah, I'm I am feeling all right, actually. I'm feeling kind of, I've got over it. It was quite deflating. I watched it um you know, in London, uh, out and about with some friends, and it was so exciting. And the penalties were such a wild roller coaster of emotion. Were you able to watch them? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I was kind of wincing and watching. I'm one of those people, I'm afraid. I can't can't really handle it. <laughs> but I am feeling like actually it was an incredible achievement. I've had I've felt such connection to this England team, and I know that a lot of people have felt that. And a lot of I've had so many people say to me that they hadn't necessarily watched England or felt kind of represented in that way. And they just kind of, it it sounds trite, but they have really united the nation and they've kind of, they've made us all so proud, I think. And it's been great. It's been great to see. I mean, you know, I'm not a football fan, but you know, I watch bits of it and saw, you know, you can't help. Now you're telling, I was going to really get in deep on Southgate's, you know, formation and like, (laughs) (laughs) no, I know your face then. I know just, that you're not. Just look of horror. No, but but just looking at just the glimpses on telly and, and that kind of thing, you could just see how he united the team and how strong they were yeah. and just how contagious it's been around uh, around the country with, you know, really random people that you know don't normally watch football. Yeah, I think obviously that's what success does and coming so yeah. close and doing so well. But also you mentioned Gareth Southgate and it is true, like, you know, the things that he represents, the things that he stands up for, the things that the players have talked about of being one part in a bigger whole and being decent and kind of being sort of uh, welcoming and tolerant are things that we can all apply to all parts of our lives really yeah. and it was great to have that summer to come so close was pretty agonizing but I am so glad that we that we had it and I think we'll we'll really remember it it gives us lots of hope for next year with it being the world cup next year you know it gives us hope that there's even more and better things in store for the England team. not got long to wait so there's plenty of time Alison to get your uh, England flag draped around your shoulders St George's cross on your face Need to learn some of the rules first, though. (laughs) I'll get you down there, yeah. Well, someone who uh, is a big football fan as well is our guest on this episode. It is Roger Daltrey, the uh, front man of The Who and uh, bona fide rock legend. He was a wonderful surprise in many ways because he talked about community, which I've already mentioned Mm -hmm. in relation to the England team. He talked about his upbringings in in West London and how food has been really important to him in terms of simple food and gathering his whole family around the table on Sunday dinners. Mm. Um, He really, really has got this really uncompromising at times, but really great, honest, old school appreciation for those kind of very human qualities. 
He really has. And actually food is so much part of him in that he's actually a farmer as well. And he's done all yeah, sorts of yeah. different types of farming over the years. You know, he is a beef farmer. In the past, he's farmed trout. Yeah, and then yeah. during lockdown, he's set up a microbrewery. So, you know, he really yeah, has got yeah. into the rhythm of the land. Yeah, he also mentioned uh, possibly the weirdest kind of a pre-gig meal that I kind of forgot <laughs> about heard. that. I can still remember our reactions, and I won't spoil that for people that are listening. But it's quite—it seems like quite a acquired taste, shall we say? Oh yeah. So here is our interview with Roger Daltrey. Welcome, Roger Daltrey, to Life on a Plate. It's a tremendous honour to have you on here. How are you doing? How how are things? Doing right. Yeah, I mean. We are where we are, and we're all in the same bloody boat. Let's hope we're all rowing the same way. But it's not been bad, because I live on a farm, so the rhythm of the land has kind of kept me more connected than perhaps if I was still in my council flat in London way back in the 60s. I don't know how those people have actually done this amount of time locked up. And if anyone should be applauded, it's those those in the high-rises and and. and you know, with families, homeschooling, it must have been an absolute nightmare. I cannot imagine. I've been incredib- incredibly privileged, you know, because like I say, the rhythm of the land, I'm a, we farm. I'm a farmer. I've been farming for 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to your actual childhood then. What are your kind of memories related to food? Because we've not really seen much of you talking about food. I mean, it was... Incredibly simple food. Every local high street had a fishmonger, a great greengrocer. Um, couldn't get much meat. I mean, but it, it didn't matter. We we survived. We were probably a lot healthier then than we are today. That's for sure. You couldn't buy manufactured food, you know. And dinners at school. I went on to school dinners in my secondary school, my grammar school, yeah. and uh, I didn't mind them. You kind of get used to it. And it becomes an acquired taste. It's like everything else, you know, when you're hungry and, you know, when you're growing as a teenager, you're always hungry. Um, <laughs> and, and the dinner ladies were great. They were, so, like I say, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And we had, we had the daily milk ration given out in school. We didn't have as much as we, as we have today, but I don't ever say we were poor. We were very wealthy. You know, we had nothing. Every, anything we wanted to get outside of the normal day-to-day, you know, keeping yourself alive stuff, anything extras in your life, you had to go out and work for or make yourself. You had to repair your shoes. I mean, how many people today know how to mend a pair of shoes? <laughs> It, it relates directly to the start of The Who as well and the start of your career in music because I've seen you talk in the past about making your, your first guitar. Like Not just me, Keith. Richard made his first guitar. And so many of the rock, uh, the rock stars of today, you know, the old guys like me, that, that we made our instruments because we no way we could afford to buy them. So you went out and bought some planks of wood and you just copied something if someone had one that you could copy my first electric guitar i copied through a shop window so it was it was a bit too big <laughs> which is quite funny but it actually but it, it did its job did the shopkeeper know what you were up to they didn't sort of try and clear you no, off they can't they? see you when you're standing in front of a guitar measuring it through a shop window <laughs> What was the teenage Roger Daltrey eating then what foods did you really crave it would have been 
you know, shepherd's pie, everything. Was, there was no such thing as leaving anything to waste. I mean, and any waste that was left, like the, the peelings off the potatoes, all that stuff, ends of carrots, Brussels sprouts, all went in the pig bin. And the pig <laughs> bin used to come round and, and that fed the pigs. I think, yeah, I'm, you're going to have to tell me a bit more about the pig bin, The pig Roger. bin was I'm, brilliant. I'm fascinated. Go on, Well, then. you know, now I have to put it all in a plastic bag in a bin so it stays in the plastic bag God knows how long. You know, it, um, probably for 50 years before that even starts to, uh, if it ever deteriorates in the ground where they stick it. But we had pig bins, uh, which was a kind of strange-looking vehicle, which was had a kind of... Uh, a, a round back on top of a truck, so it had a, had these kind of lids that came down like a like a great big bread bin. They used to go down the streets, and everybody's waste used to be fed. Or to just the went in there. Wow! So that be done to a local farm near where you lived in West London. No, I don't know how they. I don't. You'd have to look up the history of how they organised getting the pig food to uh, the, the, the pig bin stuff to the pigs, but it all went to the pigs. We were a, a wartime economy. Every other street would have a rabbit club. They were pet rabbits, but they were kept for one thing. You've got to remember, look, was, it, was it about a quarter of a pound of meat uh, per week per family, I think? It was something ridiculous. I mean, you look at the ration. Have you? I don't know whether you guys have ever looked at the, the rations that were, people were put on then. My dad is a similar age to you, and, and, and they remember at the end of the war and trade reopening and things like bananas and oranges and all the imported fruit and veg arriving. And Is that something that you remember kind of arriving, or were you just a little bit too young? Well, when you're, when you're young, you just, you, know, you just eat whatever you're given. But, you, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, it gradually got better. I can remember around about sort of, you know, 10, 11 years old, when, the ration, when, when most of the rationing was gone, and these other fruits and things started to appear. It, you know, it was luxury, and I mean, in those days, we we would have chicken twice a year. Wow, wow. Yeah. Christmas Day. That would be <laughs> Easter and Christmas, yeah. And the, the chicken would be wouldn't weigh more than three three pounds. And now we have these huge things. That- yeah, it kind of sounds like you've not lost a sense of what it felt like and how important these things were and that sort of idea of like scarcity and appreciating what you've got. Has it always kind of stayed with you? Has it sort of shaped your attitudes to food, to waste, to everything? It can't help but shape you, that that upbringing and that, that family background. It can't help but shape you. And you never forget because some of my mates are still, they're still there back in the same place that I, I came from. And I've, I've realised I've had a... An incredibly lucky life and a, and a lot of privilege. But I try and do the best with it. Yeah, yeah, completely. And one of the ways in which you do that is through the Teenage Cancer Trust. And it just seems like it's something that's really important to you and really vital. It's, to t- t- it's one of the main drivers in my life, apart from the who and the family, of course. No, the, the, the Teenage Cancer Trust, why, it, why it's important is I think we're at a time in our history where... Prior to probably nineteen the nineteen sixties, it was fine to just have the hospital system split in two two lots, paediatric, adult. But I think since the sixties and certainly since the nineties, there's no doubt that the, this middle group, adolescents and young adults, they are socially, psychologically and physically totally different than they ever have been in our history. No attention has been made to that fact. And why I support the Teenage Cancer Trust is it's the only 
age-appropriate thing in our whole NHS system, where teenagers can be amongst their peers. And that's incredibly important if you've got an illness like cancer. The psychological impact of cancer on a teenager is absolutely, I can't, I can't, I can't really imagine. We can't prove that we get benefit out of keeping them together in a group with their peers, but it's quite well known and it's very well documented that a psychologically content and, and happy patient will do much better yeah. than someone who's isolated and miserable. We yeah. just provide environment. But equally, we have changed the medic- medicine by providing that environment. We've discovered things that couldn't have happened in the old system where the, the, the clock ticked down to the when you were 19 years old and all of a sudden you, you are now an adult. So you, don't, you, you could have been with a paediatric oncologist and in our system you would have switched to a, an adult oncologist. You're the same person, but all of a sudden, your guy's changed. Well, that doesn't happen in our units, um, and we've discovered things by accident, really. So I'm desperately, desperately fighting to, to keep our charity in the NHS because they're, they're, every every children's hospital has a nursery with teddy bears. Every ad, adult hospital has, they have kind of social facilities for, for adults. Yeah, yeah. But what is there for this age group? Nothing. And it's just not right. I was wondering, how is your your ability in the kitchen? Were you ever cooking in those early days? Was it something that you came to later in life? No, no, I I survived. (laughs) I could cook a cornflake and I I, I could boil an egg. You know, um, I'm not really a foodie as such. And and I I can cook. My wife... About four years ago, broke her wrist, so I had to cook. After six weeks of a healing period, I was quite good at it. <laughs> she won't now. She won't let me cook. Yeah. Maybe I maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Did you have a signature dish while in that six weeks that you kind of perfected? No, we 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 eat very simple food, but I'm no, I'm not into gourmet food. What's a what's an average dinner like in your family home? Well, some days we we go sometimes days without with just vegetables. Some you know we have meat probably two times a week, but very little. The family likes lamb. The the Sunday meal with the whole family is always important to me. Ten of us round the table. They're all the grandkids. I mean, it's just really simple family stuff, you know. What about when you're on tour? Do you have any riders when it comes to food when you're on tours? The thing about being a, being a singer, you have to be very careful uh, what time of day you eat. Otherwise, you eat it again mm. on stage. <laughs> Was there a particular moment when you learnt that lesson the hard way? No, you kind of just know. You just you just know how hard you've got to go out and push your 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 stomach and all that that area. You just go, hey, that's not that's not going to be a good thing to do. <laughs> so what I do on tour, I usually get I I'll, I'll have a quite reasonable breakfast of you know you know eggs and or you know avocado rice. Quite a lot of rice. I sometimes do just boiled potatoes and boiled onions and mash it all up. For, d- for dinner, not breakfast, that? No, breakfast. <laughs> it's a good breakfast. Well, it's good energy and uh, it's easy to digest. And then I, um, I, I eat – the last meal I eat when we're working is uh, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'll have usually fish, just um, grilled fish. I like quinoa. Again, as a protein, is very good. 
And then I don't eat, then I might not have anything until the next day. I might have a banana at, at, after the sound check at five o'clock. That's it. And then I don't eat then until we come off stage at 11. It's a long day when we're on tour. People think this game's easy. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's, they're 14-hour days. It's a weird life. <laughs> have you still missed it, though, like presumably? Because you were on tour as, you know, as this all happened, weren't you? I've I've missed it so much because it's, it's that half of me. And my wife said, I I, I, I wanted to marry the blo- the guy on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Not the one at home. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> no, but there you go. I mean, no, it is. It's like another part of me. I've, always, I've done it since I was 14 years old. And uh, not not being able to do that is, is kind of been weird. I can't wait to do it again. I've got a tour booked in in August in California and, and, and the West Coast of America. And more for my band than anything else, because my band, they're all young and they've got kids, and they had no earnings at all last year. It's terrible. So this one's for them. And hopefully The Who will be out next year. We, it, we don't know how long it will go on, but the way I feel about it is it will go on as long as I can sing well. If I can't do what I have done all these years, it, I, I will, it, this business gives you up. You don't give it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's extraordinary the the sort of longevity that you've had um, with the Who, and to still be working so much and still touring, and your relationship with Pete, and still managing to record a brilliant new album a few years ago, uh, um, your first one in a couple of decades, wasn't it? What is the secret? We just love what we do, and there is something very different about our music. It's not like most rock music that's out there. Uh, and that's because of the genius of Pete Townsend, obviously. Um, but there's a symbiotic relationship w- that we have that, that makes his songs special when there's the two of us. I was wondering, because, you you know, you'd drive the van, you'd, you'd make sure you got paid, you'd kind of, you know, you were sort of doing everything for a lot of the time, weren't you? Did that entail kind of making sure people ate as well? Yeah, I was, I was the van driver, the roadie. They used to help unload, <laughs> like, you know, Keith Keith used to carry a couple of bass drums out, um, <laughs> and, and the others used to get on, on one end of an amplifier. But it was always me on the other end, loading the van, uh, driving the van, taking the money, as you say. But it was myself and Betty Townsend, Pete's mum. She used to book the gigs, Betty. Yeah, she was wonderful, his mum. And that you know, it, it, it's the way you duck and dive. You, you know, you got yeah. I get asked all these questions all the time about you know what what life was like then. I'm sure it's not much different now on the council estates. There's something about the community that that, that pulls together. You mentioned your voice and the trying to sort of maintain it, and there was a real scare like a few years ago in terms of you you effectively thought that your voice was gone, didn't you? You kind of had to have an operation to 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 save it essentially. Yeah, that was that was kind of it, it was scary, but not scary. It was a kind of it's the kind of thing you, you what can you do? You just got to roll with it, you know. You just got to go. Well, I'm either going to wake up and it's going to be okay, or I'm never going to sing again. Uh, and I think I think so much of life is about acceptance. Um, I had a very good woman I used to take on the road with me in the 80s, 
little Austrian woman. Her name was Rosa. And she was she was as strong as a horse. She fantastic masseur. And of course, we would in those days we were doing three hour shows, in probably six shows a week, uh, with one day off a week. And of course, that's quite strenuous <laughs> how we were, we were performing in temperatures upwards of ninety degrees in America on the, you know in the south and all. So. The, the, the physical effort of just doing it was enormous, so I had to have someone to keep my body in some kind of order. Anyway, she used to when she used to massage me, and she, like I say, she's the strongest w- woman I've ever had massage me, incredibly strong. And I used to scream sometimes, "Whoa!" You know? And she used to say to me, "What are you holding on for? Once you let go of it, it's all right." And she she was so right, and she's it's, it's about you've got to accept when you get hit by a blow like you might you might not be able to sing after this operation because we don't know what it is. It could be cancer. We're not sure. You just go under the anaesthetic. I do. I did anyway with the, with the feeling. Well, it's one of two things. I'm either either going to wake up and it's going to be okay and I'm going to be able to carry on or I won't be able to sing again. If I can't sing again, I'll go back to being a painter and decorator. I'll manage. Yeah, no, it's a hell of an attitude to have. Yeah, and I think something that we could all kind of learn from really and particularly over the last um, the last year and a bit or 18 months or the, throughout the pandemic when so many of us have felt powerless in one way or another. One of the ways in which the pandemic did have an impact was obviously with to return to the Teenage Cancer Trust. You weren't able to do those shows. You weren't able to raise that money. Well, yeah, when the government shut us down with those shows, I mean, I had a whole week at the Albert Hall sold out um, with incredible guests. Overnight, that was was an income of perhaps £2 million to the the charity taken away from us. So this year you've actually started, you've got a champagne named after you that's giving all its profit. Tell us a bit more how that's come about. Well, on our 50th anniversary, a friend of mine, a guy called Jerome, who runs a, a thing called Eminent Life, and he also does Eminent Wines. He's a, guy, he's a very a wine connoisseur. He came to me with a, with a proposal, would I be prepared to put my name on a, a bottle of champagne? And I said, well, I'll consider it because it, you know, because he does, he does wines and champagnes for other bands, and he said, "It's your fiftieth anniversary. It would be great to have that." So I considered it. I said, "Well, could I do it?" And I don't want to earn out of it, but could I do it? And it might raise money for charity. And he said, "He said sure." So I'm not allowed to do that for the Teenage Cancer Trust because we're not allowed to make money off of off of alcohol. So I I said. Uh, if we can do that, then and, and and then we can do two other things. It has to be an exceptional champagne, and I would like it to be organic. And he came back with this champagne from from a vineyard called Charles Orban, which has been in the same family for centuries. It's a fantastic cuvee. It's up there with the with the uh, Dom Perignons, and every bottle that sold, uh, 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 an amount went to um, Team Cancer America. I started Teen Cancer America eight years ago, uh, and so I thought, well, it's worth a try. Who knows how what, how how many it would sell? It was in, it could have been it could have raised half a million dollars. It could have raised a million. Whatever it have raised, it would be more than what we had 
at the beginning. I earned nothing from it. Uh, the champagne is fabulous. It really is fabulous. But I think that the run of it now is almost sold out. And it raised money for, for Teen Cancer America, which has only been going, by the way, Teen Cancer America, which I started in 2012. Uh, so we, we can only really count seven years if you count to, to 2019. Mm. We're, we're already in 43 hospitals over there with, with 60 in a queue to, to start programs. To, so I think we have proved beyond doubt that what this country has done is led the, the this movement, and it's becoming worldwide. Australia's got it as canteen. Um, Europe are looking at it. There's even... Uh, Teen Cancer San Paolo. So it's catching on because the, 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 the health services are realising that, that this, like I said earlier, this age group are so different. Yeah, it sounds like uh, I presume you've got ideas to kind of just continue the work as well, like, well, you know, to keep building on it and other people working for you so that it can be this incredible, you know, thing that is a legacy and carries on. I live, I live in hope that, Maybe in my life I will see the first hospital wing dedicated to adolescents and young adults. I'm trying to find some American billionaire. Uh, <laughs> um, because there's only one... I'll tell you why, it, for those guys worth that kind of money, which is, you know, beyond my thinking, but if I was worth $100 billion or whatever, or $50 billion or $10 billion, I would quite willingly give a billion billion dollars of it to, to build a wing of a hospital dedicated to hospitalised illness for adolescents and young adults because there's only one chance to be first at this just as, just as there was in, in I think it was 1802 that there was the, the first children's hospital was opened in Paris so there was only and that's 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 hospital the infant in Paris now for Jeff Bezos or, you know, any of those billionaires to have their name as the in their in history that they recognise yeah, yeah. this issue for the t that's not a bad investment, is it? Mm, yeah, yeah. Into yeah. their legacy. Maybe we've got some listening. Maybe we've got a couple of billions. <laughs> yeah. So come on, Jeff, give us a dosh. <laughs> I think he's a fan. Um sticking on the subject of kind of philanthropy and generosity and you know you know you've kind of done really well for yourself as you said so successful the band but I know that it's also been important to you to kind of share it amongst your family and to have everyone around the table as you mentioned earlier for for those dinners and obviously you've got all the grandkids and stuff that just seems like it's it's been a real priority of yours to to make sure that everyone's looked after as well yeah well we 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 don't live in isolation, do we? That's incredibly important to me. All my workers on the farm, I've had them since I've been farming. You know, I like continuity and I, I, I just treat people, try and treat people with kindness. Have you got any of your family working for you on the farm? In the lockdown, I was looking at my son-in-laws, my two son-in-laws who live locally and my son. And uh, right in the middle of the lockdown, I said to them, come on, we've got to think of something here. We don't didn't know. We didn't, none of us knew how long this would go on. I was trying to think of a, a cyclical thing that I could do on the farm, which would be linked to the land and this area, which is a very famous hop growing area, 
So it, yeah. I thought with hops, beer. I started mm. a microbrewery. So it's called Lake Down Brewing Company. Uh, they are now up and running. I, I, I haven't got my brewery on my farm yet. I hope to do that. I'm going to have to put a building up to do that in. And I hope that will follow in, in the years to come. But they've got actually got it going. The beer is, I've got a master brewer working for us. It's really good beer. I'm really surprised. Mm. <laughs> I'm not a beer drinker. And, and I. And you like it? That, that, it's fabulous. I can't drink the Nipahs. I mean, uh, 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 God, I don't know how anyone drinks that. But youngsters love it, apparently. Right, the sort of IPA. Yeah, the yeah, IPA yeah. things. Yeah, very hoppy. Yeah, very <laughs> hoppy. Uh, but everyone that tries them who likes beer, and they are they are these beer connoisseurs now, just like wine connoisseurs. Uh, craft beer industry is really growing. It, it it's, it's doing really well, and I'm just keeping my fingers crossed for the future because it's again we we're using the water from a spring on the farm. We will be. We the the grain that we use to brew will be fed to my cattle, so it's a whole cyclical thing again. Yeah, we'll, perfect. Yeah. So I'm quite excited about that. Yeah, you've got champagne, you've got beer, you've got beef, you've got trout. I'll tell you about. I, I farm trout. I had four four farms way back in the in the nineties, eighties, nineties. I got really interested in it, uh, more about the science of fish farming because it was very early days of, of trout farming on our rivers was that born from just a passion for fishing generally for trout fishing generally i mean you say the science as well but i just wonder was you know because it, it maybe seems on the face of it like quite an unlikely rock star activity but uh but it seems like it's been something that you've enjoyed throughout your life well it, our escape in 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 our teenage years in those days we used to go and fish the grand union canal up, yeah. up in Notting Hill and places yeah, like wow. that. And we, in yeah. those days, we used to fish with a bicycle wheel and a piece of sacking. <laughs> We'd put some breadcrumbs in the middle and pull it up a bit quick and you might get a fish. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do with the fish? Oh, you put them back. But it was, yeah, well, it yeah, was yeah. you've got to understand that going fishing has got nothing to do with catching fish. It's, it's a Zen thing, especially, uh, you know, float fishing where you've got a float bobbing about, the ripples from the float go out. Mm. And you just sit there, and if you spend a day fishing and you go back home, you you will go out <laughs> like a light, and yeah, your mind yeah. will be totally at peace. It's a fabulous uh, psycho psychotherapy thing to do, and it's got nothing to do with catching the fish. And I mm. I, I I went off them completely because we were doing. I was one time I was doing like five million trout a year. <laughs> <Wow>. Ridiculous, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, so I, I, I didn't, never wanted to see another trout, let alone eat one. Um, but I have to say that in the last six months, I've tried trout again, and, and it's fabulous. Yeah, underrated to a degree as well, because so many people. Well, I go guarantee for you that anyone blindfolded, if you put smoked trout up against a smoked salmon, they will choose the, the smoked trout. There's a question I always ask, and no one gets away with that answering. What ingredient do you always have in your house? Is there is there a store cupboard ingredient that you just the house falls apart when it runs out? Uh, cider vinegar. Mmm, very good. What do you use it for? I drink is that it for your voice. I, no, I drink it. I, I, it's it's always there. It's just always there. 
Um, and I, 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 I drink a, a tablespoon full a day. Um, mm. It's in a glass of water. It's really good. It's a homeopathic thing. I've done. Yeah. I've, I've been into alternative medicine for you know forty odd years, fifty years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and cider vinegar is part of that cleansing thing that they use. Yeah. And presumably, oh, when you go on tour, you take it on tour with you. Yes. Yeah, cider vinegar, Coleman's mustard, uh, clipper tea. I love coffee, but it doesn't like me. That brings us nicely to our quick fire kitchen grill questions. And I'm not good started. in a kitchen. I'm good you've at building them. <laughs> you've already answered this question already. Tea or coffee? Well, there you go, tea. I mean, I, I, I actually would prefer coffee, but it doesn't like me. It brings me out in a rash if I drink too much oh, of dear. it. Oh, dear. Really? I'm allowed one cup of day. One cup of coffee a day, but the rest is tea. How do you take your tea? In my mouth. <laughs> but do you have it nice and strong? Through a straw. No, no, I can have it either black or it doesn't really bother me. Um, whatever's going. I'm a real non-fussy person like that. I like it. And what about fruit or veg? Oh, oh, veg all the time. I love veg. And for breakfast, porridge or cereal? Uh, not getting on with porridge these days anymore. I used to do it when I was younger. Now it's cereal, and I have it with with apple juice. No milk, just apple juice. No, apple juice is lovely. I sometimes mm-hmm. have it with milk. I can do it with milk, but apple juice is just um, nice. Give it a try. Mash or chips? Ooh. Uh, well, it depends how the chips are done. Ooh. Are they <laughs> soggy? Ch- are these chips. chips of yours soggy? Or are they? <laughs> and are they real potatoes? Or, no, are they re- reconstituted rubbish? Or are they real potatoes? They could no, be. No, I think they're the best possible chips. Well, you can the, best possible like, the best possible chips would be the ones my wife makes, where she she boils the potato first, and then she then she cuts it up, and then she, then she puts it in the oven, puts oil on it, and then puts some white flour on it. Yeah, yeah, they're a bit hard to beat, so I'd have to go chips. But I bet they're nice and fluffy on the inside and crisp on the outside. Yes, very. And, and the, the flour does does that job. And uh, for meals, would you like a restaurant meal or a sofa supper? Oh, I love restaurants. I love going. I love. I love restaurants. I love going taking people to dinner. I love it. What are some of your favourite restaurants? I go to a wonderful little um, little Italian restaurant in Hastings. I'm a very big fan of Hastings. One of the yeah. poorest seaside towns in the country but i love it there's, there's yeah, something yeah, yeah. there's something funky about hastings there's something down to earth about it that suits me and there's a there's an italian little tiny italian restaurant there called bella vista and uh i just love going there just it, it, it's just the atmosphere i i think yeah. just eating in a Fantastic. restaurant with the with with the banter going on and just people laughing and just the bonhomie you know it's wonderful yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, no, you're right. Nice. You're absolutely right. And how about red or white wine? Oh, red. Red every time. And fried or poached? Oh, poached. Poached? Bacon or smoked salmon? Uh, I would have to say bacon. Or... That's a tough one. I'd have a piece <laughs> of bacon on top of a smoked salmon. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Spicy or mild? Oh, I can't do very spicy. I swallowed a nail when I was four years old, so my guts are a bit chopped about. Wow. <laughs> I feel like we've missed. Yeah, I feel like we've, I feel like we've So I have to be missed. a little bit careful with the spicy. Yeah, no, no. So there you go. Well, I, swallowing I a nail. 
Yeah. Wow. But it was, you know, my iron, my iron, don't suffer from iron deficiency because it's still, that, especially not with the cider vinegar. The two of them, uh, chocolate or crisps? That's a ridiculous. That's a ridiculous question. I'm really sorry. <laughs> chocolate, um, crisps, dark chocolate, dark chocolate. Nice. That's it. Is that it? Oh, God. Thank you. Roger Daltrey, it's been an absolute joy. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. All right, Jimmy. And you, Alison. Bye. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, Roger Daltrey. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. 